Hello and welcome to another episode of the Josias Podcast. Uh, Potter and myself are joined by eminent theologian John Kincaid to talk about the common good, the New Testament, maybe a few encyclicals along the way. Uh, first, we heard our, our opening music this time was the uh, extremely famous aria from Don Giovanni, which is, of course, what I think about when I think about the New Testament and the common good. Potter, why did you choose this? <laughs> well, it's a this, duet. This uh, lecherous uh, but... <laughs> uh, seduction song. <laughs> yeah, so this is from, this is uh, Don Giovanni trying to seduce Zerlina, the peasant girl. Uh, and uh, the reason why I, I chose it is because I wanted to talk a little bit about the different kinds of love uh, and the idea of love in the New Testament. Um, Pope Benedict XVI in Deus Caritas Est talks about the unity of different kinds of love. And this duet uh, very beautifully expresses the kind of love that he calls eros with its sort of irresistible promise of happiness, as he says. Although in this case, in Don Giovanni, the promise of happiness ends up not uh, being fulfilled. <laughs> no, but it's such a sublime piece of music. Uh, it, it's, uh, it's really not like a later romantic composer maybe would have written something that was much more uh, sleazy sounding but this one just sounds so pure and beautiful and fresh but then if you see it in the context of the opera of a whole, as a whole of course it's sung by this extremely wicked depraved character trying to uh seduce and ultimately ruin this poor innocent young girl who is he, he doesn't succeed as i recall but right yeah but it really sounds true when he's singing it yeah it does it does so uh, what you're saying then is that Pope Benedict's uh, view of Eros is uh, uh, Don Giovanni and uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, so, in... so that was a question I have always had. Um, I had it when I read Plato, and I also have it when I read uh, Pope Benedict, uh, uh, and particularly when I read Pope Benedict, because he seems to be speaking metaphorically at times, or at least I, I read him as speaking metaphorically, but he's, he says very strong things about Eros. And I, I tend to have a more negative view of Eros as as being uh, usually not a great, usually something to be overcome rather than to be leaned into. Well, that's so very we much, talk about that. there's very much a a strand in Christian theology that thinks about Eros that way which Pope Benedict is kind of arguing against. He never, there's a famous book by a Lutheran, Swedish Lutheran theologian, Anders Nigren, called Eros and Agape. And uh, Pope Benedict doesn't actually cite that book in his encyclical, but I think that that book is a little bit in the background of his thoughts and that he's trying to, in one way, he's trying to refute it. Um, John, you're nodding. You want to? Yeah. Nigrin kind of sets them in opposition to each other that Eros and Agape are almost mutually exclusive. So if you're going to love in a biblical, fully Christian sense, it means Agape and not Eros. And I think Pope Benedict rightly calls that into question, particularly how the terms themselves are used biblically to say nothing of a comprehensive account of love that is not simply uh, self-giving, but I think it strikes at 
the idea that for somehow if it's self-giving, it's also not receiving as you do that, as if um, egoism is going to sneak in uh, because you're giving, if you give yourself to also receive something, then thereby it tarnishes it. And I think Nigren's presuppositions are fraught with kind of, not just kind of, I, I, a lot of people would say it would be Luther, but it's probably likely kind of the, the hangover from Kant as well, that somehow uh, if you're going to give yourself, it, you can't benefit from that in, in any way whatsoever. And I think that the New Testament's vision of self-giving love is indeed truly sacrificial, but in that there's also a, a full reception uh, of the good, that they're not seen as any way competitive. And Deus Cartes S is a great expression of uh, an integrated, comprehensive account of love, not just in itself, but I think fully consistent with the witness of the New Testament. So, so you mentioned Kant there, uh, and I just, I just wanted to ask you, John, really quickly. Uh, Potter has this great uh, uh, paper or talk on Luther and Aristotle on happiness and how Luther really thinks of Aristotle as being ultimately uh, something that has to be rejected because it's too uh, uh, self-centered. It's, it's uh, anti-Christian. Uh, when I was reading Deus Caritas Est in preparation, I started looking at some of uh, Aquinas' discussions of love. Uh, do you think uh, Benedict's discussion is ultimately uh, uh, sourced from Kant, or do you think that it's... It, it's uh, uh, reconcilable with uh, Aquinas? I, I think it is. Um, yeah, I think I think they are reconcilable. I mean, obviously, the Holy Father was having a bit of a different um, set of interlocutors, obviously, than, than Thomas was. Yeah. So I think in the end, Thomas's comprehensive account of, of love has profound continuity with, with Benedict's. I think Benedict, as a German, uh, is writing against the backdrop of both Luther, Luther and Kant, as well as the trajectory of two to 300 years of precisely you know, German thought about love. And so I think he's looking to chart a path forward that builds on some of the, the good insights that are there, but without falling into some of the pitfalls of setting Eros and Agape against each other, setting sacrifice and also reception together it's ultimately kind of the false choice between egoism and altruism, which had plagued a lot of moral reflection uh, in yeah. continental thought. And Benedict, I think, is using love as the gateway to get around that that problem. And that's just not on Aquinas's horizon. Right, right. Yeah, it's interesting that he, Benedict, uh, he doesn't, he doesn't begin with the, the sort of, um, Kantian uh, problem of love that that you get in in Nigren and others, but he actually begins with Nietzsche, who sort of turns that, who who also has that opposition between eros and agape in a way, but turns it around. Nietzsche is, uses it as kind of an accusation against Christianity, saying Christianity is sort of too selfless and and sort of destroys the beauty of human love. If it sets it as competitive. I think Nietzsche's critique makes perfect sense against a certain strand, namely that if you look to give yourself in love, somehow there's no way that's going to be beneficial to you. And 
that just strikes you as almost ridiculous on its face because love is so inherently not just satisfying in an embodied human sense, but that to which all things are ordered to think that you wouldn't benefit from that is just, um, I, I think it's inherently problematic. And does that come, does that, does that view start with Kant? Cause I, I sort of associate Kant with almost saying uh, to be really praiseworthy, you have to do something not just because it's a good thing for you. Therefore, anything that in any way is something you'd want to do or something that you would enjoy or something that would benefit you directly can't be what's good. It has to be like he 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 so divorces it from what you know Aristotle's talking about in the Nicomachean Ethics uh, that it. I, I guess I, I guess I, what I'm asking is, is does that view really start with Kant and, Lu- and I guess Luther ultimately? I think I think it is Kant is a big influence here. But as you say, Luther is kind of in the background. You have Luther. Right, right. Because Kant is kind of trying to justify philosophically uh, at least one strand of Lutheran thought. Yeah. Kant's ethics are kind of a secularization of one aspect of Luther's ethics. I think that's right. So the the just the reason why I wanted to talk about this was kind of self-serving too. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't mean it's not loving, right? To, uh, that doesn't mean it's not loving. Apply this right. to my own life. Um, <laughs> so I'm writing a book about Catholic social teaching. And I thought one way of, of I wanted to, to look at Catholic social teaching in a broader way. Catholic social teaching has a, a narrow sense of sort of Rerum Novarum and the encyclicals that develop the teaching of Rerum Novarum. But in a broader sense, it means all of Catholic teaching on social and, and political life. And in a way, you can, Catholic teaching is a social teaching, not so much that Catholicism has a teaching, but in a way that it is a social teaching. And it struck me that the uh, a way of going into this is to look at this problem that we've been talking about in uh, as in Deus Caritas est the the problem of uh, Nietzsche's accusation against Christianity in ways that it's too it's too altruistic uh, or the Nigrin's accusation against Eros is that it's too egotistic and to be really pure and Christian you have to be totally altruistic um, but it's interesting that in his second encyclical Pope Benedict brings up kind of an opposite accusation against Christianity, uh, opposite to Nietzsche's, that is, um, namely the accusation that Christianity, the Christian hope uh, in in which we are redeemed, is too individualistic. That uh, the Christian, you know, his we hope for eternal life. Everything we're doing is for eternal life, which is a good that sort of transcends earthly society uh and so it seems like it makes us indifferent to uh to the good to the social good of our our fellow men here on earth yeah i think i think that that's right one of the most important things that i learned from your father as his doctoral student is kind of the the underlying problem in that entire trajectory that pope benedict is referring to or alluding to as it relates to objections against Christianity is predicated on a core misunderstanding of the common good. 
and so or at least a, a lack of embracing its importance so Potter, your father from the very first time i started studying with him would drive home repeatedly that the common good is infinitely shareable and that which perfects any individual are the things that are infinitely shareable versus a more modern notion of the common good which would be more instrumental namely those things that aren't it may be goods that we share in common uh, but they can't be infinitely shareable they're just instrumental at best and when we've moved that way and sometimes even within the catholic tradition sometimes it's spoken of that way things can become individualistic because you have to divide up uh, the pie and there's not an infinite amount to go around the table. But if we define the common good properly as those things that are infinitely shareable, then it's not as if I have the truth that Potzer Edmund and, and Joel don't have because I took it all, but rather I'm perfected as you are perfected in that which perfects all of us. And those are the infinitely shareable realities. And then in a, from a Christian standpoint, that's ultimately the triune God himself. So John, I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, sort of recent uh, developments in, um, in scriptural exegesis and how you see kind of these problems that Pope Benedict XVI raises as being addressed in recent readings of, of scripture, what you see sort of as the strengths of some of these recent readings and how you would, you've, you've just published a book on St. Paul. Right? I did. So yeah. Paul, you, uh, Paul, a new covenant Jew, uh, with Brant Petrie and Michael yeah. Barber. It's out with Erdman's. So a shameless plug. Yeah. I got, yeah, yeah. I got, my, I got copy. my copy. Oh, that's great. I must confess, but I'm, I'm looking, I'm looking forward. forward. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. It was a blast to write in, so to answer your question, the, mo the most important book in Paul in the last 30 years is a fairly recent book called Paul and the Gift by John Barclay. And the book looks at gift giving in antiquity as the right context for understanding Paul's account of grace. And he shows a number of very important things. First, just for Pauline soteriology, broadly speaking, that Gift-giving and obligation and responsibility were seen as not only not competitive, but necessarily intertwined. So a gift would come with an obligation, and not in some kind of merely quid pro quo kind of way, but that the gift and obligation would go together in order to build the very fabric of society. So if you see that in regards to the Pauline grace, grace itself carries with it a certain obligation. Well, what's remarkable about Paul's account then is that for Paul, the, the gift is given to the unworthy, which is profoundly revolutionary in antiquity, and that it actually empowers the right response. So rather than a gift is merely extrinsic to you, I give you something and now it's up to you to bring about the desired obligation. Yeah. It actually empowers the right response. Now, that's great for Pauline sociology, but for the wider kind of questions about the common good and kind of extensions or uh, kind of the things that you might want to further run with from Barclay in regards to this kind of conversation is I think what Barclay's account of grace also shows is that for many in antiquity, maybe not everybody, but for many, including Paul, 
um, gift and obligation rightly understood was not a question of egoism or altruism. Um, you didn't give a gift merely because you wanted to have power or self-interest or respond in the same way. Well, people can yeah. do it. They can yeah. use it that way. Rightly understood, it was ultimately meant to be, the gifts were meant to be instrumental for a sharing in a full common good. That is, when I give myself, I actually find my own perfection. And it's in the goods that we share that we can actually share a common life. And you see this in Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, where all of this kind of comes together, right? Where various gifts are given for the building up of the body, and they're rather than being competitive, they're there, and actually Paul talks about for the common good. And so we tend to think of this as in a very modern way, as kind of a zero-sum enterprise. And the upshot of Barclay's work is, in regards to Paul and soteriology, grace empowers a right response. So God giving something doesn't mean that we don't have a, an, not only an obligation, but an obligation he empowers us to meet. So faith and works grace and agency, they can work in a non-competitive way. But I think for Catholic social teaching in this wider conversation, there are also some significant implications, namely that giving oneself or giving things within a relationship need not be seen as either I'm doing this and it's not good for me whatsoever, or that I'm giving this in order to lord it over you. But rather, it's meant to facilitate true a true polis, true politics. Yeah, that's really great. There's, it seems to me there are two, there are two questions that are very um, kind of intimately related, and the one is is this question we've been talking about of the common good, and the other question is the the relation of the natural and the supernatural, or of nature and grace, because it seems like part of the problem. Um, in space salvi part of what makes christianity appear individualistic is not so much that you're desiring um salvation for yourself but that it seems that salvation is kind of irrelevant to this world because it's a supernatural good that sort of transcends this world um and it seems to me that some some strands, I want to hear your take on this, because it seems to me some strands of more recent uh, Pauline scholarship, or not more recent, but somewhat less recent than Barclay's work, uh, you've got these new perspectives on Paul that are, are not, no longer so new, but E.P. Sanders and N.T. Wright and these people. And uh, I, I've just dipped my toe in this stuff. But it seems to me, that there, there's a, a temptation there to react too much against previously, against previous uh, individualistic readings of of Paul and of Christianity, and to to make it um, to make salvation be too much about this world and the restoration of society in this world. I think that that's right. What's interesting is that N.T. Wright has correctly shown that for Paul, and, and, and not that this was necessarily disputed, but I think Wright has done a very good job at showing this, and that is Pauline soteriology, Paul's gospel is inherently corporate. And 
it inherently has a yeah. lot to do with restoring relationships in the church and in the world. And that's 100% true. However, then, I think you're right, Potter. I think that's an astute um, observation. The tendency of Wright and maybe some who think like him is then to see that somehow as competitive to at least the kind of heavenly and supernatural, uh, as if the higher negates the lower almost. And then the temptation is to think then, because, it, and for Wright, it's very much pr predicated on a wanting to have a radically Jewish account, and therefore it's the restoration of this world that then therefore it's really not about the heavenly and supernatural teleology. And I think Wright is correct in what he's affirming, but incorrect in what he's denying. It's not as if it can't also yeah. be that. And Paul is, Christ I mean, what's interesting is Paul couldn't be clear in a place like Philippians that our citizenship is in the heavens and that we're ordered to conformity to the man from heaven, namely Jesus Christ. So for Paul, he he has no problem seeing this world being ordered to the next, and in fact, an inbreaking of a heavenly realm that, which is our home, because he says in Galatians four that Jerusalem is ab above, and that is our mother. So yeah. this is where right can't fully, in some of the new perspective, can't fully square it. And there's an, an another school in and and. Pauline scholarship, the apocalyptic, that wants to say, no, you guys are, you got to realize that there is this radical heavenly dimension to both Second Temple Jewish thought and then Pauline thought. There's something radically new happening, and it is not only supernatural, there's an inbreaking of a, of a heavenly dimension. That's really fascinating. Um, and I think, uh, you know, a lot to chew on, certainly for me, I, I'm far from up on Pauline scholarship. Can I ask this, though? Does does the uh, sort of grace nature debate also sort of, uh, at least here, track on to the uh, debate that you see Benedict, uh, Benedict is somewhat critical of that, that comes with the, the materialists, where uh, the contemplative and the uh, practical lives are sort of contrasted so that uh, it seems to me that certain modern theologians uh, really downplay the extent to which heaven and the Christian religion ultimately is a contemplative religion with con the contemplative life and the contemplative act being the highest act of Christianity. And they want it to be all about going out and doing works in this world and making this world perfect, or in Marx's case, uh, you know, his entire thing is about making heaven be on earth by uh, uh, practical actions. Does that make sense, Potter? What do you think, Potter? I mean, I, I think that that for Paul, it's Pauline studies is different because it, it's more like Paul has a radical account of obedience that if grace doesn't empower, it, it seems like you're you're left having two strands in Paul. It's all by grace, but then you've got a lot of work to do. So it's a bit of a different conversation, particularly after the Reformation. But I, I, I think, I, I think Joel, your, your point is well taken on the wider conversation, namely uh, 
the the elimination of grace in the as almost unnecessary or a, kind of a, a layer cake account in relationship to nature that allows in the modern world it just to be about what you get done now in a very pragmatic way. I think it does indeed uh, call into question then a lot of things about what salvation is, including what it rightly should be ordered to the, the contemplation of the triune God in the life of worship, it almost makes it superfluous. And so I do think the need to have an integrated account of grace, both restoring, elevating, and perfecting nature on a wider scale is absolute, right. absolutely important. Yeah. I want to read uh, a little passage from um, a foreword that, Cardinal Ratzinger wrote in 1988 to uh, actually to an English edition of a book by his friend Henri de Lubac, the uh, <laughs> one of the big figures in the nature grace debate um, in in the 20th century. And this is this is the book of Henri de Lubac that he that he also quotes in Space Salvi. It's Catholicism, uh, de Lubac's Catholicism which begins with uh, all these objections from French intellectuals against Christianity as being too individualistic. And then Delubach's main thesis in that book is that redemption is the reunification of the human race in Christ. It's salvation is corporate and so on. But Ratzinger makes this interesting remark in the foreword, um, which I'm just going to read. Uh, Nevertheless, even today, this book is much more than a witness to a constellation in the history of ideas that has now been surpassed. For the very spread of his ideas in popular theological thought has unfortunately led to their being considerably simplified and flattened. The social dimension which de Lubac saw rooted in deepest mystery has often sunk to the merely sociological, so that the unique Christian contribution to the right understanding of history and community has disappeared from sight. Instead of a leaven for the age or its salt, we are often simply its echo. If previously there was a narrowing of the Christian vision to an individualism, we are now in danger of a sociological leveling down. Sacraments are often seen merely as celebrations of the community, where there is no more room for the personal dialogue between God and the soul, something many greet with condescending ridicule. And so there's been a kind of reversal of the previous individualism that itself has fundamentally constricted the theological perspective and has often spread from the central theological themes to the most concrete and practical applications. I thought that was really interesting. You have there a kind of Scylla and Charybdis uh, situation where on the one side uh, is this individualism, but then on the other side, these attempts at showing that, in fact, the teaching of, of sacred scripture uh, is not individualistic, um, it has this 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 tendency to sort of horizontalize and to to take away the uh, yeah the, the 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 necessarily vertical dimension that we are that salvation is about 
union with the infinitely transcendent good of God, who's. Uh, I, I'm reminded. I'm reminded of the uh, opponents that that Charles DeConnick is sort of uh, taking on in uh, primacy of the common good, uh, because one of the one of the objections to him was that oh, but contemplation is uh, of uh, done by solitary people. It's a solitary activity, so therefore your your entire thesis falls down. So on the one hand, you had the personalists who really wanted it to be this individualistic thing, and on the other hand, you had the uh, uh, sort of uh, more red uh, 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 materialistic uh, authoritarians who wanted uh, the common good to be literally the state and wanted to have everything be practical and more uh, more uh, horizontal. And it's not it's not exactly the same debate, but there are a lot of interesting parallels, I think, because I think a lot of these issues ultimately all stem out of the Enlightenment and of Luther and Calvin. And so as a result, they they end up playing out in different spheres. But it seems to me that there's sort of interesting parallels because of the the uh, the similar uh, intellectual genealogies, as it were. And in, in Space Salvi, um, Pope Benedict talks about not only uh, that genealogy that you talked about, but he particularly talks there about the Enlightenment and uh, Francis Bacon's kind of um, project of of uh, returning to the Garden of Eden through technological progress. And Bacon is very explicitly anti-contemplative. He's you know got no use for that. Yeah, and what's interesting is then. Um, I mean, there, so Pope Benedict's argument there basically is that the Baconian program of salvation through technological domination of nature um, sort of becomes a substitute for the hope of salvation through grace. It becomes sort of the main corporate hope of humanity is technological progress. And then, you know, if you like, you can sort of also have this personal otherworldly hope that you're going to be in heaven and so on. But sort of the serious business of human society is technological progress. And then what's very interesting, I don't think Pope Benedict really um, presses this as hard as he could for, for, uh, particular, for particular reasons. He then goes to, to the French Revolution and the, uh, the idea of freedom there, freedom and reason as uh, the triumph of freedom and reason, which the, the revolution is all about. And I think that this is this is part of the uh, the new idea of politics that you get in the French Revolution, which he shows how it's sort of transformed in a different way by Marx, but with some basic features remain the same. The this is one of the reasons why um, why that uh, what he says in the foreword to the Delibach book that the sort of the turn to the the social leads to kind of a, a bracketing out of the supernatural, contrary to Delibach's uh, intentions. I think part of the reason for that has to do with the secularization of politics that you get in uh, in the French Revolution and, and sort of the political realization of the Baconian idea of progress. That is, in the in the 
medieval idea of politics that is in the best medieval uh, ideas of politics. There's again a whole panoply of ideas there. <laughs> but in the best ones, you see, you see a hierarchy of ends where the piece of this of society in this life, temporal peace, um, is not identified with the peace of the, the, the city of God, but it's seen as being ordered to it and being in a way participating in it if the city of God is, is the platonic form of peace, then uh, you know the peace of this, the Duchy of Austria in uh, the 12th century is a participation in that peace. It's a temporal participation. And so that so that you get a kind of this, the, sac, the so-called sacralized politics of the Middle Ages um, is, I think, really allows you to, uh, to, to fall neither into the skill of, of individualism nor the cryptus of a kind of horizontal sociological uh, reduction of Christianity because you see the, the pursuit of supernatural peace as being the higher goal, but the pursuit of, of temporal peace as being a participation in that and in a way sanctified and sacralized by that. And I would add, I kind of take this a bit of a different angle to a similar idea. And I think that, let's come back to Space Salvi a bit, um, in a way that's complementary yeah. to what Potts are saying. Pope Benedict highlights the Baconian project and not only how it gets back to the garden, but how technological progress can give you a different hope. And in another way, around the problem right. of death, right? Because ultimately, um, the Christian gospel is profoundly hopeful in as much as it's also a, a way that the ultimate enemy of the human race can be defeated, and that's death. So right, right. technological advancement holds out this elusive promise, one taken up by Descartes and others at least alluded to, and that is, you know, we're going to be able to advance in such ways that maybe one day that this the age-old enemy of death will be defeated by other means. And, and Pope Benedict really questions not only whether that's possible, but not only yeah. that, is that it already has been. In as much as Jesus of Nazareth has himself defeated death, and all of us by hope participate in his defeat of death. The secularization bit, not only politically, but also the move towards mitigating or denying the resurrection of Christ. And that as the most important event in human history, where in one sense, the natural and the supernatural nature and grace find its zenith in his resurrected body. And that is that to which all yeah. things must ultimately go. If that is put to the wayside or put in a realm that's either imaginary or Machiavellian kind of imaginary commonwealth, then we better get to work on something that really works. But if Jesus really is alive and has defeated death and is the Lord of, of all things in this age and the world to come, that it has a fundamentally reorienting shape 
to all things, but ultimately the transpolitical nature of the gospel itself. That is, politics in this realm, variegatedly understood, still in the end have to be, in a Christian sense, looking to the resurrected Lord of the city of God to provide that justice that you can only have in that realm. Right. No, that's very profound. And I, and I thought one of the interesting things that Benedict does in, in doing that is he talks about how uh, if if life is just going to be this worldly life, like no one wants to die, but just continuing this life forever and ever with nothing coming in to be more fulfilling would be a nightmare. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it would be, be horrible. It would be stuff of a horror movie. One or damn thing you know. after another. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just for eternity. <laughs> it's always, you know, not yet, not yet. But it, it but what we desire isn't really never. Uh what we desire is something higher and different and kind to really be able to satisfy us. And uh there's you know Ultimately, what we desire is Jesus himself, which we get only in foretaste here. But as you point out, that will be the heavenly banquet and the heavenly city. And it will be a hierarchy. It'll be a true society. Uh, and it will be, uh, as, as he puts it, it'll be different in kind than what we have now. To bring it back to New Testament scholarship, not only in, in Paul, but in Jesus, I mean, it, the movement of the historical Jesus to the, not only the credibility of the Gospels and that a lot of the myths that were developed in the 19th and 20th century about not only late dating of the Gospels and questions of genre. I mean, we've moved so far to early dates of the Gospels and that they're Greco likely Greco-Roman biographies and so tethered more to history. All of that points in another direction, namely reconsidering rightly, again, in a nuanced way, because you have to understand uh, the questions of historiography, but understanding in a nuanced way that Jesus of Nazareth is the most important human who's ever lived, and that this is this is a question of genuine history and not in a sense of the historicism that emerges from modernity enlightenment, but properly understood. It's about things that have occurred in this world that have real historical credibility to them that have transformed things in such radical ways that the message of Jesus uh, must be something that needs to have full and deep consideration in regards to life in this world and the next. And it, it is easy for us post-modernity, post-enlightenment, to lose sight of the fact that Jesus of Nazareth is the most important human who's ever lived. And that message changed the world more than any message ever has. And that can't be politically irrelevant. And, you know, I tell my students this here at the University of Mary, I say, you know, Jesus is more important than any human you've ever looked at. And it's not in some alternative cosmos where, you know, you have the spaghetti monster in the sky. It's in this one. And more than that, more than Karl Marx, more than Charles Darwin. Why? And it, it does come back to these kind of questions about the perfection of the human, the ordering of the natural to the supernatural, the perfection through love that is profoundly human 
And Jesus, among all of the men and women who have ever lived, I think gave the most persuasive answers to what perfects a human being, and that's love. Uh, Potter, what were you? Uh, that was great, Potter. What were you? What are the lines you quote, or you 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 cite in your sermons? Oh, I was going to cite. I quote these lines. Let me read them. To imagine ourselves outside the temporality that imprisons us, and in some way to sense that eternity is not an unending succession of days in the calendar, but something more like the supreme moment of satisfaction in which totality embraces us and we embrace totality. This we can only attempt. It would be like plunging into the ocean of infinite love, a moment in which time, the before and after, no longer exists. That's really beautiful. Uh <laughs> And it really is, is you know, uh, to go from from the sublime to the ridiculous, there's a passage in Evelyn Waugh's uh, Sword of Honor trilogy where this sort of uh, uh, somewhat debased, uh, I think he's a writer, he, he's one of the, the secondary characters, is thinking uh, it's really too bad uh, that I haven't been a some sort of pagan who could get limbo because isn't limbo what everyone really desires? It's, <laughs> it's so imaginable, right? <laughs> you, you think you're like, Oh, all my, all my desires are satisfied. I'm not because heaven, heaven is in a sense, terrifying. Uh, the thought of, of actually seeing God in his essence is you, you become God, but I mean, you have to leave behind so much of what you think of as yourself. You have to really empty yourself out. And uh, uh, for, for people like myself who are, who are uh, still attached to worldly things, unfortunately, there's something terrifying about that. It's, it's uh, plunging into the ocean of infinite love is, is what we desire, but it's not something that we should think of as like, oh, it's a safe, you know, nice thing to do it, it would be a terrifying thing to do uh, to, to to contemplate because uh without without the the aid of grace seeing god's face would would uh dissolve us i mean it would shatter our being yeah it makes me think of of which, which uh, another story from c.s lewis and that's the great divorce um which is my favorite lewis uh story where for the for, not to play spoiler to those who haven't read it, but I would imagine many of those who listen to your podcast have that when yeah we don't worry about spoilers on this <laughs> yeah <laughs> so the, the the members in hell are given the opportunity to take a bus up to heaven, and many choose not to take it because they don't want to be there. But for those who go, they get off the bus. And the weight of glory is so great. The beauty and the infinite love that we're talking about so immense that they're terrifyingly, they run back to the bus. And they want to go back to where they came. And the only the only the protagonist remains, but the protagonist walks through what seems like for Lewis, his, what most people think is his purgatory on the outskirts of the glory of heaven. And it's exactly what Joel was saying. It's the things that have to get addressed that hold us back from giving ourselves entirely to that 
terrifyingly great, but also glorious weight of, of God's love. That is precisely what we need to do in order to be able to be drowned in it. Yeah, I've I've some I've some pro- difficulties with the Great Divorce, but um, <laughs> leaving those aside, <laughs> you, you're not you're not a fan. Maybe maybe one way of of well, uh, not entirely. It seems to me. Well, okay, I'll say in brief what my problem with the Great Divorce is. Um, <coughs> It seems to me that Lewis is is thinking of it there that uh, to be damned, you have to be something like completely evil. There's one image he uses of a a pile of ashes. If there's any little bit of, of ember that's still glowing, they'll blow on it until they get the whole fire going again. But if you're just ashes, they can blow and blow and it'll just blow into your face. Um, and it seems to me that is something that Lewis himself in other passages contradicts insofar as evil is the privation of good. So uh, you're, never, you're never going to have someone who's just a pile of ashes. There's always going to be, uh, there's always going to be something good. Even the devil is good insofar as he exists. Um, and what, what I think, I mean, and what the, the church teaches is that to be damned, you don't have to be completely evil, but you have to have done something which implies that you have, that you in that act, turn away from God as your final end. That is, you do something that's incompatible with God being the final end. You put something else as, as your happiness other than God. So it just takes one mortal sin to go to hell. You don't have to be a complete pile of ashes. <laughs> I guess my only quasi defense of Lewis there is that I mean, obviously, in the allegory, he may take some uh, liberties to kind of get inside the logic of those who would lock hell, you know, that hell's locked yeah. from the inside, right? So I mean, I, I hear your point, right? about the the privation and i think that's fair as far as it goes but he's a master of like the the psychology of it and so i think he's trying to make clear that people are actively choosing to go where they go it's not by accident yeah yeah exactly and like sirach says god has put life and death before you and whichever one you choose that's what you'll get right yeah. i think that's exactly right all right so here's here's a question which maybe will help to sort of uh, apply some of the things that we've been saying um, and thereby clarify them. The Sermon on the Mount. Um, if we look at the Sermon on the Mount, it seems like, and, and, and people tell me this sometimes, you know, uh, that it seems like it's this totally unrealistic, completely selfless altruism, right? You deny yourself completely, you let yourself be completely exploited by these losers who, you know, they want to go, they want you to go a mile with them. You go two miles with them, right? You know, they want to take your cloak. You give them their, your tunic as well and so on. So how, how do we read the Sermon on the Mount? Well, I think in here, I want to refer to a great book by Nathan Eubank, who now 
teaches New Testament at Notre Dame. I went to Duke with him, and it's called it's his dissertation called The Wages of Crossbearing and the Dead of Sin. And he shows in Matthew's gospel, and this certainly has to do with the Sermon on the Mount, is that Jesus doesn't articulate his call to that kind of self-giving sacrifice in a way that's merely altruistic because he puts before it the offer of wages, prayer, fasting, almsgiving, do it in order to secure heavenly recompense, heavenly wages. So Jesus has is not a Kantian in the Sermon on the Mount. He's certainly putting before you the promise, if you love like this, your heavenly misthos, your heavenly wages will be super abundant. And so it's actually, Nathan shows, it's a beautiful book. Nathan shows that Jesus is actually questioning the investments that we tend to make, you know, or humans writ large, but particularly his audience in first century Palestine, to think that you would look to get return on your investment through the various things that you do. His logic is you can't keep those anyway. But rather, in giving yourself through cross-bearing, expressed through prayer, fasting, almsgiving in Matthew 6, it's actually a superior investment because it's one you can keep. And the one who will give the return on that investment, that wages, those payment, is his father. And then throughout Matthew's gospel, Jesus is the quintessential wage earner then, because he does everything he calls for in the sermon. And then the resurrection, and then his giving, the Father's giving of Jesus a super abundant wage, demonstrates that this is a superior investment, and it's the only one you can keep. So rather than being altruistic in a pejorative sense, it's the perfection of the human in, in the world to come and this life because it brings true happiness. So that's a plug. Uh, for, for Nathan Eubank, Wages of Crossbearing and the Dead of Sin, DeGroyter, and it's available paperback, so it's, it's actually reasonable. And different than most dissertations, it's incredibly readable. Oh, I'm going to have to check this out. So... Uh... This is this is entirely beside the point of this podcast, but something you said made me uh, wonder about this, and it's one of my uh, the things I often uh, think about. Uh, so, 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 in your view, John, which is greater, love or knowledge? Well, what's interesting in light of the New Testament witness, I think Thomas, in the end, gets it exactly right. There's a shocker, and that is, in this life, love is. <laughs> because it's that which perfects us, you know, and we were just talking about Matthew's gospel, brings heavenly misthos wages. It's that for Paul, which fulfills the law. But, and then ultimately, if you look at it, kind of the, a macro account, particularly kind of more Thomas's speculative account, looking to get to the truth of the thing, it's that which allows us to enter into the beatific vision and then attain our ultimate end, which is then seen. So in the end, it is knowledge, but in this life, it is charity. Right, right. 
That's uh, that's a very good answer. <laughs> and that's you what passed, I think you passed as well. the Joel test, John. <laughs> uh, I was worried. I was like, I, I don't know if I'm going to pass. This this is tough. <laughs> I was like back in my comps. I was like, good. This I don't know if I'm going to get get out of this podcast alive here. We, uh, we yeah, yeah it's yeah, a it's, it's a, a, it's, a it's, it's yeah yeah no I think I, 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 it, it is something, something I, I I I I didn't mean to pose it like a test although you did pass <laughs> the test but it is something that I think about a lot because I think it's it's a very fruitful or at least for me it's very fruitful area and it just it it so many different things come to play there and 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 I I you know. It's also been a, a, contentious, a, a contentious area, area in, the church, in the church and amongst, and amongst theologians. theologians. Uh, one of my favorite passages of, of Space Salvi is where he talks about the father of my order, St. Bernard of Clairvaux. And uh, he talks there about the contempt of the world and the, the monks have. They're fleeing the world out into this wilderness but uh, to contemplate God. But as kind of a side effect of what they're doing, they uh, are in fact improving the world. They're first of all by rooting out sin in their own hearts, transforming themselves. They're transforming a part of the world. But then Saint Bernard is also says that it's the prayers of the the monks that are holding the world together, as it were. So the the most loving thing you can do is to is to go off and contemplate God. Yeah, and that kind of ties back to the what we were talking about earlier with contemplation, where uh, contrary to what this world thinks, contemplation is not a selfish act. Going off to a monastery isn't a selfish act, although sometimes when my kids are jumping at me at 6 a.m., it, it seems very attractive. <laughs> or 6 a.m. at like 2 a.m. is... Uh, uh, I'm not talking about these strict monasteries now. Those, those seem too hard. Uh, no, but it, it, right, you should, contemplation you should ends join up my being... monastery, Joel. It'd be just, just the right amount of strictness for you. <laughs> contemplation ends up being a gift for the whole church. And uh, I'm reminded of two things. Number one, uh, uh, one of the Habsburgs uh, who's on Twitter uh uh, ended up writing this article, I think it was in First Things, about the uh, Austrian uh, Habsburg's great crime in suppressing a bunch of the contemplative orders and how he thinks that ended up causing a lot of problems down the line because uh, he saw, he sees rightly that contemplatives are, in fact, a gift to the whole church. And also there's a book uh, by Patrick Leaf Fermer, who's not any sort of Christian, I don't think, ultimately, called uh, A Time of Silence, but it's about him going to a monastery. And it's actually a very beautiful, very short book. Uh, and he basically, his his point is, you know, these Trappists seem crazy unless you understand what they believe, which is that their uh, prayers and their penance and all the things they do have great importance for the entire world. In which case, they're maybe the only people who are really acting rationally. That sounds like a sounds like a good uh, a good final line. I think I need to go uh, go off and 
pray Compline and then go to bed. Compline. Do exact do exactly what Joel just said. Yeah. We'll we'll pray for us. Yes. We'll do, yes. yeah. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you guys. Well, thank you so much. This was uh such a great uh pleasure for me and uh uh thank you and till next time, signing off. Yeah, it's great talking to you guys. Thanks very much.